I'm going to uh, read a scripture and then we're going to get on. If you've got a Bible, um, although it will come up, but if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. I'm going to read that. That's what we're going to be at least starting in. We're going to look at a number of scriptures today, but this is probably the, the scripture that holds them all, uh, all together in this particular message. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. And it says this. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who in turn was responsible for a number of churches. He says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. I'm just going to read it again because it's quite a short passage, but it's quite a powerful one. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we are a privileged people that you would choose to come and dwell with us, that you would choose to speak to us is, uh, is nothing short of amazing and it's nothing to do with us. Lord, we recognise the grace that comes to us that allows you to come into our presence and to speak so clearly, to confirm things, to affirm things, to bring assurance to individuals. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've come, that you are here, that you engage with us in a way that would seem foolish to anyone who didn't understand you. It would seem foolish, but you do it. And we bless you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in my update this week, I, I apologise that I didn't, um, uh, I didn't do like my family update or anything like that. Uh, Pauline said that when she got the update and she noticed there was only like a list there, she didn't bother read it. So um, that's how she often operates. It's that she needed the family update to really keep her engaged. And I know that other people, that's the bit that they really read. They don't read anything else. So you probably didn't read it this week. But if you had read it, I listed... 10 lessons that Christians can take away from the Olympics this summer. Now, I, I loved the Olympics. I was a big fan. We never got to go. We tried. Didn't work out. But I'm a big fan. Love it. And, and I was just really interested in some of the things I was observing and watching. And I was thinking about the Christian faith and all that sort of stuff. And all over the summer, I've just been pondering around those things and, and recognising that when you looked at the Olympics and the Paralympics and, and you saw the characteristics and the, and the attitudes of, of all of those that took part, I, I couldn't help but think, do you know what? Um, this is going to encourage some people to go running now. Yeah? Some of us, maybe, as a result of the Olympics, we're going to start running and jogging. Uh, when I was driving in this morning, I, I drove through Streatham uh, today and, and just by Sainsbury's in Streatham, 
there were literally hundreds of cyclists. I don't know what's going on. There's some cycling for charity, but hundreds and hundreds of them all into the Sainsbury's car park, all up the road, around the corner. I saw others coming down the road. Um, and the Olympics and the Tour de France and, and, and Andy Murray is going to... Some people are going to buy tennis rackets. They're going to buy bikes. They're going to buy running shoes, yeah? And all of that is great. You know, if you want to do that, great. It's great. But I just remember thinking to myself, for the Christian, we can do all of that, but the purpose of the Olympics and the provocation of the Olympics was not to get me to go and run the 10K. Yeah? It's actually to go, gosh, here are some people who have sacrificed and given up stuff for something that doesn't last very long. Here are some people that have, that have given their whole lives to compete in an event. And I remember one guy, I was watching the, because I'm, I'm quite sad when I get to w- watching sport, and I, I was listening on the radio to the archery, yeah? It was the archery competition, I'm listening to it on the radio, and it's like, nine. I'm like, okay, nine, ten. And um, it's because I was, I was in the car, and it was going on like this, and... Uh, and they just started talking a little bit about the training regime of some of these guys. And th- this guy, um, who was, he was in his 40s, he was in the archery competition at the Olympics, and I think he came about eighth. Do you know what I mean? So you won't know him and I, you won't hear about him. But he, his training regime was this. He would shoot 300 arrows every day, six days a week. And that was like eight to ten hours he would, he would spend on archery in order to compete at the Olympics, in order to come eighth. I'm like, wow. That's like dedication. That's like sacrifice. That's like commitment. And I'm thinking, wow, does the Christian do that for for anything? Do we do that? Do we operate like that? And I was just provoked into thinking over the summer, do we, and what does that mean for us? It began to make me think about, okay, what should the Christian be doing? What does the Christian need to do that is the equivalent, almost? That means that we sacrifice. That means that we're prepared to give up. And I realised it was this, that we need to train ourselves to be godly. You see, not everything you do as a Christian helps you become godly. You might think it does, but not everything you do as a Christian will help you become godly. And in fact, some things you do will actually hinder it and you don't realise. Let me give you a really silly example. You might have come away from watching the swimming and deciding, do you know what? In four years, I'm going to be at Rio in, in um, Rio de Janeiro and I'm going to be swimming for, the, for Team GB. Yeah, that's what I'm going to be doing. And so you come away from it and you think, okay, okay, if I need to learn to swim, I better just get used to the water. So what you do, remember you're going for the Olympics, you decide to attend a fun swim session, yeah, where they have floats and wave machines, and you go there and you, you rise with the waves and you come down the slides, and you're thinking, good, I'm just getting used to the water, I'm just practicing and training, because one day I'm going to swim in the Olympics. Yeah? So I start in a fun sort of wave machine. I don't know how to swim. So you know when you don't know how to swim, you watch people who haven't had lessons and they swim like this? Yeah? Because that's how I swim. And they <laughs> swim like this. Yeah? Because you've never had a lesson. And I realised, I, I thought, because when I do breaststroke, which I'm just not very good at, I'm going like this, going like this. And it's really hard work. And I don't get anywhere. Yeah? I didn't realise, I was talking to uh, 
somebody the other day, they, the other day about this, and they said, oh, the thing about breaststroke, the key to breaststroke is, is the strength, that it, the power comes from the legs. And I'm like, does it? I was literally, does it? I, I thought that the arms did it. But actually, the arms, they just get tired. You go half a length, and you're like, oh, you have to go near the side. <laughs> yeah? Now, just imagine if you wanted to train for the Olympics, and that's what you started to do. Fun swim, you started to teach yourself to swim, you started to do all these things. There would come a point when you'd realise, do you know what? This isn't getting me anywhere. I think I'm doing something to help, but actually I'm not. And we can be like that when it comes to trying to be godly. So for us, trying to be godly might be we come to church on a Sunday. So we think, if I come to church on a Sunday, um, that, surely that's, that's trying to be godly. That's going to help me become more godly. Or in some places, sadly, if I dress in certain types of clothes, maybe that's going to help me be Christian. One of the saddest things I heard when I was, um, I was listening to a, a talk by Jackie Pullinger, and she said when she first went to Hong Kong, uh, she was a missionary in Hong Kong, and, and she still is, actually. Um, but back in the 1970s, when she first went to Hong Kong, and she began to meet some of the drug addicts and the prostitutes in the walled city, and she would speak to them, they would say, a Christian is somebody who wears smart clothes. That's what they said. Because every Christian they knew was always dressed smartly, and a Christian was somebody who carried around a book. They didn't know what the book was, but they just knew if you were a Christian, you wore smart clothes and you carried around a book. How sad. How far away from the truth can that be? Or a Christian is someone who doesn't swear, or they don't smoke, or they do charitable things, and, and they do more of them than anyone else because they're Christian. And we can sometimes think that it's those things that can help us to become godly. But the truth is, they don't. And in fact, sometimes if you, if you rely on those things, like your works, you find that it actually hinders you from what godliness really is. You see, the majority of what helps us become godly is not seen by others. The majority of what you need to do if you want to become godly is not going to be seen by other people. And so if you focus on the things that are seen by other people, then actually you won't be focusing on the things that make you godly. So what is godliness? Let me give you, it's not an exact definition, these are just my, my thoughts from reading the scriptures. Uh, godliness is the growing harmony that comes between what you believe and what you practice out of a deep reverence for God. So it's like a growing sense of harmony in yourself about what you believe and what you practice. I, they begin to come together. They begin to make sense. They begin to feed one another. Rather than, I believe certain things, but actually the reality is I live a completely different life. And that's easy. And the way we reconcile that is we just say, well, do you know what? I'm a sinner. I'm human. God knows I'm trying yeah, so we reconcile the fact that our beliefs and our practices are so far apart by the fact that we are human and the fact that we can't, you know, I can't make myself do those things. But godliness is a growing harmony. Godliness leads to consistency in your living. It's why 1 Timothy 6 verse 6 says, godliness and contentment is great gain. Why is godliness and contentment great gain? Because the more harmonious you live within yourself, the more contented you'll be. 
you'll be content. You'll, you'll, you'll be at peace with yourself. And so being at peace with yourself becomes a sign of godliness. And I don't, by peace, I don't mean ignoring all your problems and, and just sort of uh, living in, an, uh, in sort of cuckoo land and you're unaware. Peace with yourself is a recognition that uh, my beliefs and my practice, they're coming together in reverence for God, in love for God. It's consistent. You see, you don't become godly by coming to church or being prayed for, simply. You can't, you can't say, look, oh, can you just pray that I'd be more godly? Yeah? Godliness requires self-discipline and commitment, which is why Paul uses the analogy of the athlete when he talks about it. Yeah? He uses that analogy of the athlete. The athlete goes into strict training. Train yourself to be godly. It's possible to train yourself. It's not like one day I'm praying, do you pray for me, spirit breaker? Oh, godliness has come upon. No, I don't become godly that way. In the same way, you don't become an Olympic swimmer by going down rapids and flues. Yeah, that's not how you do it. You have to change some things about your life. And as I said, most of what makes you godly is unseen. It's the continual internal adjustment in your life towards God and not self continual. It's ongoing. You are deliberately and intentionally, continually changing yourself so that you are looking more to him than you are to yourself. And you have to continually make the adjustment. Let me just give you a really uh, example of gardening. Now, I don't like gardening. Pauline wished I did like gardening more than I do. So we have in our garden something called bind wheat. Yeah? When you get it, you can't get rid of it. It's everywhere. And it's like, oh, it's such hard work. Yeah? Now, when I go to my in-laws' house in their garden, they don't have bindweed. And I'm like, we've got bindweed. Why haven't you got bindweed? Do you know why it is? Because he continually, or they continually, are out in their garden and they're weeding stuff. They're, they're, they're sorting the garden. They're working on the garden all the time. They don't leave it like I do. Oh, my love, I'll get to that. I'll have a big gardening day once or twice over the summer and then, uh, and then we'll be okay until the next summer. That's how I do gardening, yeah? So I had one the other Saturday. It was like, oh, it's really hot. It's my gardening day. I chopped down things I shouldn't have chopped down. I destroyed some things I shouldn't have destroyed. But I had a gardening day, yeah? Once. That is not how you're meant to garden and you don't become godly by going away in a conference. You're going, oh, I've just been here for a week. It's been wonderful. I've been before the Lord. He's been wonderful to me. Oh, I'm glad I've done that. That will keep me going for another year. No. If you are going to train yourself to be godly, it is continual. It is continual adjustment. It is continuous. Weeds don't just grow like in a day. Yeah, over time, your place just gets more weeds. You need to continually keep them down. So how do we train ourselves to be godly? Because it's really important. You can do lots of things as a Christian. You can read lots of books, you can listen to sermons online, you can do lots and lots of things. But if they are not training you to be godly, you actually won't become mature. You'll still struggle with the same things you struggled with in the same way that you struggled with them before. Godliness enables you to move on. It doesn't mean that suddenly, oh, I don't sin anymore. Sin is like weeds, it's always there. Yeah, you have to continually be digging it up. If you don't continue to dig it up, it will just grow. And some of them will look like flowers. And you'll think, oh, I like that bush. You're not realising it's a weed. That's not meant to be there. 
But it's there, and because you've left it so long, it begins to look like something that you think should be in the garden. I don't know what that one's called. It's a new bush. It's just turned up. So how do we train ourselves to be godly? Just going to give five things. And these apply to you whether you are a seasoned, mature Christian or you're a relatively new one. Whether you feel stable and strong or whether you feel weak and unstable. If you do these things, you will train yourself to be godly. If you train yourself to be godly, you will grow in maturity. If you grow in maturity, you will become more at peace with yourself. So let's go through them. The first one is this, and they're really simple. You could probably um, say them for me, but I'll just go through them. The first one is this. Set aside time to read the Bible. Set aside time to read the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 says this. Uh, as for you, I'm, gonna start, I'm just going to go to verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. If you do not read the Bible, you are taking away one of the major things that help you become godly. Reading the Bible is a really important thing that you can do. You can read other books, but do you know what? The way to guide things, make sure you're reading the Bible more. Yeah, Make sure you read the Bible more. The importance of the reading of the Bible cannot be overstated. God reveals himself through his word. The Bible doesn't say this. there's There's no other book that has ever been written that says this. All scripture is God-breathed. No other book says that. It's only the Bible. So let me just give you some really simple things. Find a good version of the Bible, i.e. don't don't read a paraphrase. Don't pick up the message and think, oh, I'm reading the Bible. No, no, the message is a paraphrase. It's a good paraphrase, but it's a paraphrase of the scripture. You need to have a good sort of, if you like, um, translation of the Bible. And there are a number of them. You know, the New King James is a good one. The NIV is a good one. The ESV is a good one. Find a good translation of the Bible to read. If you can get one with short explanatory notes, it helps. Secondly, have a plan. Don't just randomly go, oh, you know, if you're going to train for the Olympics, you'll have a plan, a training plan. Have a plan when you read the scripture. It doesn't need to be complicated or long or written down. You don't need to spend hours on it. You just need to have a plan that helps you to read the Bible regularly. What do I do? Every morning, I go downstairs and make a cup of coffee. I get a couple of biscuits. I go and sit in the garage and I read two chapters of the Bible every day. That means that in two years, I read the whole Bible and a bit more. Yeah? And I've been doing that for years. So you don't need to get a, I've got to read the Bible in a year thing. You know, how do I manage to do that? Yeah, do that if you want to. But actually, you just need a plan that helps you. It feeds you. I see my daily Bible reading as like daily food. That's how I see it. It's, like, it's, not, it's not me going out for a gourmet meal. This is me having a scrambled egg on toast every day. Yeah? Well, I don't have it every day, but uh, you know what I mean. It's like that every day. It's the basic bread and butter for the Christian. I think where we've made a mistake in church, and even I, I made this mistake a few years ago, where, where I said, you know, people used to say, you know what, you know, learning styles means that if you don't read, then you can find other ways to connect with God. 
If you remember what Phil said last week when he talked about God being displayed in the universe and in the world and all that type of stuff, but it not being enough. Yeah? In the end, if you don't read the Bible, you will only grow so much in the end. If you can't read, praise the Lord these days for audio Bible. But you've got to get the scripture into you if you're going to grow as a Christian. You don't get it into you simply by uh, thinking about it or even reading books about it. You have to, in the end, read the Bible. You also need to understand that you've got to ask the right questions of the Bible. If you don't ask the right questions of the Bible, it's just like, it's just like reading your stars. You're just going, what did, oh, it says that. You know, when it says, Phil read it early, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. If you don't understand how to read the Bible, you might be thinking, what, God has big eyes and they go around the earth? Well, of course he's not saying that. Yeah, you need to understand how scripture is written. You need to understand the questions to ask. And you need to, you need to read it carefully. Do you know what? Some people just don't read it carefully. You know, are you the sort of person you don't read instructions properly? Yeah, I, I do that. I don't, I don't read instructions properly. Pauline had a little job for me. I was doing the job. And then she said, have you, have you watched that video where they show you what to do? And I was like, oh, no, I haven't. So, so I'm getting it all wrong. Yeah, you need to read it carefully. We can make the Bible mean whatever we want to mean, and lots of Christians do that, yeah, which is why you get funny churches. I mean, exegesis, I'll, I'll just give this term out, is the term given for how we interpret the Bible. And we all exegete. Yeah, it's not that there are some people who do and some people... We all exegete because we all look at the text and it means something to us. But if you only exegete yourself in just looking at it in your own way, purely subjectively, it will be badly. If you simply exegete it that way. There are just some questions uh, that you can ask if you want to train yourself so that you ask the right things. You need to ask these questions. What does it actually say? Read it. What does it actually say? Read carefully. And then you ask the question, what did this passage mean to those who originally heard it? What did it mean to them? When the Jews heard that Jesus was the Messiah, what did that mean to them? What is the context? I, who is it addressed to? The culture, the literature, what, what's around it? What is, what is being said around it? And then what does it mean for us today? You just need to ask some simple questions like that when you read the Bible. And you can do that that can take you 15 minutes. Yeah, it doesn't take long to do that. If you do that, you will grow. Secondly, devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. And I, was, I, was, I, I, I discovered, or, or, or it was shown to me, I can't remember when it was, over the summer at some point, just the, the picture of John 17 as a model for prayer. John 17 is when Jesus prays. It's the most intimate prayer in the Bible because it's Jesus praying to his Father just before he goes to the cross in John 17. And, and this is a summary of it. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed. And he prays, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And then he says a bit later, I am not praying for the world. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. Yeah, I'm not praying for them, I'm praying for those you have given me. And then he says, my prayer is not for them alone, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. The model, it's really, 
really simple. Now, there are some differences. Jesus was the Son of God. He was the perfect Son of God. He didn't, need to, he, didn't need, he didn't sin, so he didn't need to repent. Yeah, that is an added thing that we do need to pray for at times. Yeah, but what you see in this is he prays to God the Father and he prays more than anything about God's glory. He doesn't pray about himself. He prays about God's glory. Yeah, that you would give me glory or that they would see your glory. He prays about glory. This being the ultimate focus of God himself. Everything he prays is in relation to this. Firstly, he prays for himself. Do you know what? You need to learn to pray for yourself. Don't, 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 please don't think it's polite to pray for other people, not to pray for yourself. You need to pray for yourself. Because the truth is, there won't be anyone else who prays for you as much as you will pray for you, and there won't be anyone else who will understand your situation as much as you will understand it. People will pray for you, but you need to pray, learn to pray for yourself and be comfortable with that. He prayed for his friends and his family. He prayed for those who are closest to him. So you need to do that as well. Pray for yourself. Pray for those who are closest to you, those who are close around you in your life. And then he prays for other people that maybe he doesn't even know. He prays for people outside of that. We also know that he prays for situations that he's facing. Luke 22, verse 41, he prays about going to the cross. So it's completely legitimate to pray for situations, to pray for yourself, to pray for your friends, and to pray for others. You must do it. You must do it. It's part of what will help you to grow godly. Thirdly, I have to move quickly through these. Learn to worship alone. I found it really interesting that Becca gave that testimony of worship. Yeah, so she's, she doesn't know what to pray. So what, what does she sense? God says, worship me, worship me. And that we got to that place in worship where even despite difficulty, we worship him. And actually, it, hadn't, it was only at that moment that it occurred to me that, gosh, that's really powerful because it's not what the devil expects. In difficulty, you would still worship him. He's thinking, in difficulty, you will curse him. But actually, if you love him, you'll worship him. And you need to learn to worship alone. Yet a time is coming, it says in John 4, and has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For these are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. So what does that tell us? The Father seeks worshippers. He's looking for people who will worship him. And worship cannot be confined to half an hour on a Sunday morning. You can't simply say, oh, yeah, I'm really good in worship. You know, I'm really up there. No, actually, God, no, he seeks you to be a worshipper. And in fact, what John, what John 4 also tells us is worship is no longer about the form. It's no longer about the place. It's about the heart. They will worship him in spirit and in truth. The spirit means it's an internal thing. We worship God internally. That's where the worship comes from. It's not the songs that we sing but also we worship in truth. So what you sing matters. You can't just sing any old song and call it worship. What you sing matters. And so worship songs, and one of the things I'm always keen on is that we have worship songs that are full of truth. Yeah, because we worship in spirit and in truth. If you understand about worshiping in spirit and in truth, you'll recognize it's not whether it's excellent. Because if all of us are called to worship, you see, some of you can sing and some of you can't sing. Do you think God sits in heaven? He goes, oh my goodness, Owen's worshipping now. <laughs> Just close my ears a little bit because some of those notes. Oh, Becca's worshipping. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
No, God doesn't do that. Worship is about the heart. And it's good for us to remind ourselves of that and also to learn to worship. So I would encourage you, learn to worship alone. Because if you don't ever worship alone and the only time you ever sing praise to God is when you come to church on a Sunday, actually that's quite sad. As much for you as it is for him, he wants to hear you. Yeah, He wants to hear you bring, it's a sweet, sweet sound in his ear. He wants to hear you. So again, in the morning, I do my little thing. Later on in the day, I suppose now I'm a pastor, I can do this more easily, I worship. I worship and I pray. Yeah, and it's just me and it's God. Yeah, there's no one else. I pull the blinds down, I just worship. I encourage you to do it. Because I also think this, if you learn to worship alone, you won't be critical of worship corporate. You won't. Because you'll know that worship's about the heart and you won't be thinking, oh, the tune, oh, the song, oh, the words, oh, the bell. You won't be thinking that if worship is something from the heart. It's the essence, not the form, John Piper tells us. And it has the power to change you. Fourthly, moving really quickly on, examine your motives and your attitude. Philippians 2 verse 3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Motives. If you want to train yourself to be godly, you have to check your motives regularly. You can't just think to yourself, well, at the beginning I had good motives. And now, okay, my motives might not be good, but it's other people, that's why. It's not me, it's other people. It's one of the biggest problems with us, us people, humanity, is that we we like to put blame onto other people. The moment you put the blame of something onto someone else, you do not examine yourself. The moment you say, oh, it's them. You do not actually examine yourself. And this tells us that we must examine ourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing. In humility, consider others. So for me, it's about shining the light of that truth over my life regularly, asking the question, is this selfish? Is this selfish? Am I being considerate here or am I making a point? Is this a principle that I feel I need to hold on to or am I, am I in humility considering others better than myself? Basic Christian stuff, but this is the basic Christian stuff that helps you grow in your godliness. These are the things you need to do. You can think of other things, but these are the things that you need to do. Secondly, attitude. This tells us your attitude should be that of Christ. We need to work on that. You need to pray about that because it won't come natural. What was his attitude? His attitude is the fundamental aspect or principle of the gospel. He didn't grasp what he could have grasped. He humbled himself and as a result, God lifted him up. In Jesus at the cross, we see the fulfilment of the promise in 1 Peter 5 verse 6, where God says, humble yourself on God's 
in God's mighty hand and in due time he will lift you up. You see that in Jesus. He humbled himself under God and in due time God lifted him up. Humble ourselves means this. We don't fight our corners. We don't fight the corner. We don't say, but you know what? You know, we do that, don't we? We do that. I say we, we, not just you. I'm not talking to you. We, we do that. But we shouldn't fight our corners. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And in due time, he will lift you up. What needs to come out will come out. What needs to stay hidden will stay hidden. That's not my, it's not my job to try and do that. Yeah, God didn't call me to be the arbiter of certain types of practices. Yeah, he called me to humble myself. He called me to have the attitude of Christ. Do you know who didn't do that? The devil, because at one point the devil was an angel. He's a fallen angel. What did he do that Jesus didn't do? He did consider equality with God, something to be grasped, and he went for it. He went for it. That's what Eve did. She went for it. We're being called not to go for it. Let's take the attitude of Jesus. Imagine if we had a church where people did that. They humbled themselves. They didn't consider equality. They didn't think about, well, if they're doing that, then I'm going to do that. They didn't take that type of approach. If you want to train yourself to be godly, you must examine your motives and your attitudes regularly. Because emotions are like weeds. Yeah? You don't, you don't kill an emotion forever. You have to regularly, regularly be going back over it. You don't overcome lust one day and say, do you know what, I no longer ever think that way. You know, it might be different for you, but me, I've got to that point where I don't ever think like that. I see pretty girls, I just think, oh God, aren't you wonderful in your career? No. You have to, control, you have to work on that all the time. Some, some of us will work on that more than others, but there will be things you have to work on. And you're deluding yourself if you think that, oh, I, I, I dealt with pride. Do you know what? I dealt with it. It's gone. Hallelujah. It's behind me. No, pride is there before you. And you'll know that when someone walks in and they get blessings that you didn't get, suddenly you think, oh my, where did it come from? It's an emotion. It's there. But if you want to be godly, examine your motives and your attitude regularly. They need constant attention. Finally, if you want to be godly, love the church. Now, I'm really sorry, because I think for some people, this has been maybe more hard than I want it to be. I'm, I'm trying to be pastoral here. Yeah? This is me being pastoral. Yeah? And me being pastoral means I want the church to understand that if you're going to live Christian, you need to live Christian. Yeah, we take the Bible, we read it, and we go, do you know what, God, you've said some things here. I'm going to try and apply these to my life. I'm going to have belief and practice, and I'm going, to ha- I'm going to bring them together through continual working at it. I'm going to bring them together. And the final one is love the church. This is what it says in Peter, 1 Peter 4, verse 7. It says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all... This is what the Apostle Peter says to a number of churches. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. 
Peter is writing to local church communities. If you read the beginning of 1 Peter, it talks about to, to the, I can't remember, it's the saints or the elect, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia and various other places. That's how the letter begins. It's, he's writing it to local church communities. He lived, firstly, with a keen sense of the awareness that Jesus was coming back. The end of all things is near. He's expecting Jesus to come back. And therefore, he writes the things that he thinks are really important. If Jesus is coming back, what do we need to know? What are the really important things that we need to understand if he's coming back? We need to know that above everything else, love each other deeply. That's what we need to know. Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. So why love the church? Precisely because many of us don't love the church. We don't love the church. We come to church, but we don't love the church. And there are a couple of reasons why many of us don't love the church. Firstly, for some, we just haven't caught the vision of it. We haven't understood what the bride of Christ is. We haven't understood that he is pouring everything into this thing in order that he can reach the world and his name can be glorified in all the earth. And that one day he's going to come back for his bride, the church. He loves the church. Yeah? And when you understand that, you realise, oh, God, you've poured everything there. Your answer to all the problems of the world came in your son and your son then began to build a bride. He began to build a people. You are the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God. He loves the church. And some of us, the reason we don't love the church is we haven't seen that yet. We haven't seen it. For others, it's because we've been hurt. Which is why it talks about love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's because we've been hurt that we don't love the church and it's interesting when I was early on this year I went to uh, um, I went to the HTB leadership conference Tony Blair was there and he was interviewed by Nicky Gumbel and he was really really interesting and it was one of the highlights for me and one of the things he talked about if you remember Tony Blair when he was prime minister he took the country to war in Iraq and and after that everybody really disliked him and hated him and 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 of vilified and he tells a story of his two sons going campaigning for him on one of the elections one of them knocked on the door of a house and the man came to the door and he said you know I'm here to sort of you know ask are you going to be voting for Labour or Tony Blair or whatever and he got a mouthful of expletives the son did and he sort of thought oh okay and he walked away and because he's a bit of a joker he said to his brother oh there's a there's a really nice guy in that house you go to that house He's going to, you know, he's a re- really good guy. He says some nice things about that. So the, the boy goes, second boy goes, hi, hi. You know, just wonder if you're going to vote for Tony Blair. Bigger mouthful of expletives. He says, oi, that's my dad you're talking about. And so then the man changes and he invites him in for coffee and it's all like, oh, yeah, you know, we can be friends. And Tony Blair tells that story. And I, I know how I would feel if that happened to my girls. But he tells that story and, um, like, like, smiling and laughing. And he says at the end of his interview... Do you know what? I still believe in politics. I, I haven't become a cynic. Even though all of those things went wrong, even though I had all those problems, even though all those press reports, even though all those lies that were told, I still believe in it. It's not made me a cynic. And, and I just thought about that and I thought, do you know what? So many Christians need to take that view of the church. 
I still believe in it. It's not made me a cynic. The fact that I've been hurt, the fact that the church seems to do things that it shouldn't do. Because do you know what? We all get hurt by the church. There's not a club. You know, over here are the hurt people and over here are the people who hurt. No, we all get hurt by the church. The question is how you respond and what you do. And do you still believe in it? Because if you want to train yourself to be godly, you need to learn to love the church. And the reason you need to learn to love the church is this. And I finish with this. Your godly training will be tested and honed in the church. Without the church, your training would be like an athlete who trains but never competes. It would be like a footballer who practices but never plays in a competitive match. Yeah? You need the church to be godly. Yeah? You need the church to become godly. So then this leads to another question. What about my work? What about my life outside of church and all those things? You need to remember this. The majority of training is personal and internal. Yeah? It's not about the church. The church is the only thing that relates to other people. The majority of the training is personal and internal, which means it will affect the whole of your life. Your life. You make training yourself to be godly your number one priority. You will find that a few things will happen in your work. You will hold work more lightly. You won't get so caught up in the culture of the place, which we accept that we do because it's moving so fast and all those sorts of things. You won't get caught up in the culture of work in the ways that you don't want to. Your life will shine with integrity and consistency. That, that will happen. People will say to you occasionally, what, what makes you do that? Why do you do that? Or they'll say to you, I'm going to ask you to do this because I, somehow I trust you. Yeah? I had a guy say that to me. I hadn't done anything. Yeah? But he phoned me up and he wanted me to do something that was quite important. And I'd only been, I was, I was governor at the time. I'd been a governor for three weeks. And he said, I want you to do this thing. He said, there's something about you. There's, some, there's something that I know that if you're sitting on there, you, you'll, you'll probably make the right decision. Or something like that. I can't remember the words. But it was about integrity. And that will shine through. Integrity is not divorced from being Christian. Integrity is part of it. Why? Because integrity is about the harmony. It's about the consistency. It's about what I believe and what I practice. They're the same. What's inside and what's outside, it's the same. Yeah, if you had a camera and you watched my life, most of the time it would be, the, it'd be boring, but it would be the same. And it would be easier to witness. To the question, do you want to train yourself to be godly? That's what God calls us to be. Train yourself. It might mean that you need to make some changes in how you operate. It might mean that you need to give 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. It might mean that if you already do that, that you need to give a different type of focus to it. Because you do lots of things, but actually they're not growing you. They're not making you godly. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, come this morning and we are so grateful for your presence with us and Lord we recognise that you have called us to, to build the church here and that to build the church it needs every individual to play their part and to play our part Lord we need to train ourselves to be godly
We need to know what it is to grow in that harmony of belief and practice. We need to set aside time to read the Bible. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to learn to worship alone. Examining our own motives and attitudes. And we need to love the church. And Lord, I really believe that if we do these things, we will be more godly. Because your word says that you can train yourself in godliness. So Father, would you be with us now? each one as we go. Lord, I pray that this week, Lord, we will be reminded of these things regularly by your Spirit as we go about our daily business. I pray that they will be heightened to us. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for being with us. In Jesus' name, amen.